Hello and welcome to another episode of the Comeda Podcast, the show where each week we take an extended pause to consider something new and unique about the world of communication research. Today, we'll be talking about communication accommodation theory. Today's episode is sponsored by Grandma's Pantry, selling expired and nearly expired canned goods since 1987. Grandma's Pantry. Now, before we dig into communication accommodation theory, we should probably take a moment to discuss the relationship between language and culture in the first place. What is the relationship between language and culture? The link is undeniable. Culture guides how languages are used, and languages help create and perpetuate our culture. There's a close link between language and ethnicity. It's a fundamental attribute of group membership. It's an important cue for ethnic categorization, uh, an emotional dimension of cultural identity, and, um, and pretty much the vehicle to facilitate group cohesion. Our online communities, our interpersonal friend groups often develop our own specialized languages among these groups uh, to reinforce and share culture. So take a moment, think about your own friend groups, your own online communities that you're a part of, and the social media that you use. How do these communities use language to create culture? How is culture reinforced through language? So how does all of this relate to communication accommodation theory? In a nutshell, communication accommodation theory analyzes how people from different cultures interact to pursue their own goals and assert or in some cases obscure their own cultural identity and language plays a crucial role in this process how could it not right one of the primary ways that we interact with one another is through language and the other being um, you know nonverbal expression at any given time when we're interacting with people from different cultural backgrounds, we are making unconscious decisions of whether or not we are going to accommodate their communication patterns or diverge from their communication patterns as an assertion of our own communication or our own culture. Some people are more likely to accommodate others' communication pattern. In general, we're unaware of the extent to which we alter our own communication behaviors within our interactions um, because we're at any given time using a variety of verbal and nonverbal behaviors um, that can be involved in accommodation or divergence, uh, including different languages, rate of speech, the volume you're speaking at, your body language, the, the amount that you're smiling, uh, and a host of other different behaviors. We even engage in accommodation in email and text messages. So do your own email and texting patterns change based on who you're interacting with? If one of your friends always uses exclamation points, are you more likely to use exclamation points? Likewise, if you have a friend who speaks entirely in emojis, are you more or less likely to speak to that person in emojis as well? The answer to that question depends on a variety of factors, um, complicated situations of whether or not you're going to accommodate their behavior or try to diverge from their behavior, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a few minutes. Now, by this point, this idea of communication accommodation theory might uh, be sounding familiar to you. You may also know it as code switching, uh, where you intentionally switch the way that you communicate in order to accommodate others. Um, everybody code switches. Um, maybe from an informal setting to a formal setting, from a friend group to parents, uh, to talk to puppies, 
Uh, but for some, code switching is a high stakes behavior and can literally be the difference between getting a job or not, or in extreme circumstances, can be uh, a life or death decision. When we do talk about code switching, we usually aren't referring to these ordinary interactions when we go from informal to formal settings or friends to parents. When we talk about code switching, we're most often talking about when a member of a minority cultural group changes the way that they interact to accommodate someone from a majority cultural group. Um, and here you can see where this might lead to circumstances where somebody's inability to code switch or um, just choosing not to code switch can lead them to not get the job or the promotion that they were interested in. Or potentially something much more dangerous than that. And to exemplify this, I'd like to play for you an example of Chandra Arthur's TEDx talk on code switching. Three years ago, after moving back from Berlin, I had an experience with local law enforcement. I was living in an old family house at the time, but without a car. So typically, even when I was home, there would be no car out front. One afternoon, as I was going through old memories and moving around what seemed like to be a thousand boxes, the blinds in my spare room were being shifted to and fro as I was generally just cleaning out the space. My neighbor, an elderly woman, took it upon herself to be the unofficial neighborhood watch. And so seeing the blinds moving back and forth and no car out front in the driveway, she deduced that my home was being burglarized on a Sunday at noon and called the police. As I continued to clean, I was pretty unaware of what was going on outside of my house, but audible and unfamiliar voices prompted me to pause my cleaning activities and to go outside just to see what was going on. The scene that I encountered when I opened my front door is one that I will never forget. Four police officers with guns drawn, one pointed directly at me, were surrounding my front porch. Get out of the house, hands in the air, hands in the air now. I froze. Up until this point, I had never actually seen a real live loaded gun this close to me, much less had one pointed in my direction. Now I'm here before you today because I obviously survived that encounter. I was able to collect myself enough to answer questions and prove that I had every right to be in that property. But what if I had not looked like me? What if I had not spoken like me? What if the person who opened the door looked like a thug? Whatever image that pops into your head when I use that word, what if the person who opened the door had not been able to collect themselves in the face of grave danger, confusion, and potentially even death to prove that they had the right to be on that property? What if I had expressed rightful anger for being mistreated by police in my own home? What if I had been a black man instead of a black woman? So there are very real consequences for people who cannot or choose not to code switch. In the language of communication accommodation theory, we would say that there are very real consequences for people who cannot or choose not to converge with others' communication patterns. So when you choose to diverge, or if you are diverging uh, subconsciously, you're not really thinking about the situation, you're just acting as you normally act, it could have some very real consequences. Um, and some of them can maybe physically violent, like the example we just heard. And some may be somewhat more innocuous in that people in general prefer situations that are, that are more predictable, that are more familiar to them. So they prefer interactions among people who they perceive as similar to themselves where they can find some common ground. So if you are diverging, whether intentionally or unintentionally, 
it can function as a subtle but perceptible cue to the person that you're interacting with that there is a difference there. We've been using these terms for a minute now, but we haven't really described them. So when we accommodate someone else's speaking patterns, we call it communication convergence. Uh, And in contrast, when we maintain our own speaking patterns and interactions, we refer to this as communication divergence. Whether we converge or diverge with others um, is contingent on a variety of factors and can be explained through multiple theoretical perspectives. And one of these explanatory theoretical perspectives could be uncertainty reduction theory, something we've already spoken about in a podcast before. Um, So if you remember in uncertainty reduction theory, there's uncertainty on both sides of any new interaction, right? And generally our goals in those interactions is to reduce our own uncertainty. So if you'd like to reduce uncertainty and you'd also like your conversational partner to enjoy your company, um, you may take steps to converge with their communication patterns. You may take steps to accommodate them in an effort to demonstrate perceived similarity, in an effort to forge that new connection. You see this a lot with politicians. As an example, Hillary Clinton caught some heat for this a couple of years ago when she was campaigning for president. Um, She was somewhere down in the South and she started to incorporate more y'alls and a little bit of a twang into her speech. Um, And some people on the Internet decided to make fun of her for it, saying that she was over accommodating. Right. So you can over accommodate at some times where it seems like you are pandering to the people you're trying to interact with rather than trying to increase similarity. So when you're doing this intentionally, when you're are intentionally converging with someone else's communication patterns, um, you really need to walk a fine line. In her defense, she had lived in Arkansas for a very long time, so it's possible that whatever twang she had was just coming back. Another theory that may predict when we don't accommodate others or when we're more likely to diverge rather than converge is uh, social identity theory. So it's possible that when we engage in interactions with another person, what we'd like to do most is portray our own social identity or our own background rather than converge with another And people's motivations for this can vary. It can be something as simple as a a display of individuality um, or a display or a pride in one's own culture, um, or it could just be hostility and you don't want to engage with that other audience further. Um, So by diverging from their communication patterns, it's a a subtle nonverbal reminder that uh, you don't really think that this interaction is going to proceed. And that kind of segues us nicely into the last thing I want to talk about today, and that is... Um, when we have predispositions to either accommodate or not accommodate or converge or diverge, um, and these these predispositions may be affected by a variety of things, right? So it could be the cultural background we come from. Um, people from collectivist cultures are much more likely to converge with others, whereas people from individualist cultures are much more likely to diverge. It could be the history of interaction you have with this other person or other party, right? If you have a distressing history of interaction with someone, um, you may not want to converge with their communication patterns, sending those cues that you don't want this interaction to proceed. Maybe stereotypes you hold about particular groups um, could affect the extent to which you converge or diverge. Maybe norms in a particular situation or norms around other groups, right? So if you are a member of a minority group or a marginalized group, the norm in that situation may be to conform to the majority group's interaction styles. And that concludes our content on communication accommodation theory. 
Thank you again, as always, for joining us in this brief Kamada. And hope to see you next time.